Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fish and Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend. Today we have a special guest and uh, I'm excited to chat a bit about kind of what he has going on, about his book and some cool uh, wild food as always, but uh, let's see where it goes from here. But in the meantime, I'm going to get some updates out of the way. So for me, it was an eventful weekend this past weekend. So we were down in Texas for our second ever uh, Wild Pig Skills Camp. It was down there with a good portion of the Harvest Nature crew and uh, Leland Brown from the Non-Lead Partnership. And we put on this pig camp for about 12 folks down at Lost Creek Ranch in Texas with the mission to teach people how to shoot, how to hunt, butcher, process, and cook wild pigs. And uh, I will tell you that despite the rain and weather and everything that was thrown at us, we were successful in our endeavors. And uh, I've had my email inbox flooded with uh, some great emails of folks saying how much they enjoyed the experience. And uh, for me personally, always a great uh, camp to go to. I love interacting with people. I love getting involved in the cooking and butchering and just seeing uh, we had a lot of new hunters, we had some experienced hunters, we had some return guests, but just seeing like those aha moments of when people are like, oh, so this is what it is. This is like what getting my food is like. This is, you know, the feeling of harvesting my first animal. And uh, ironically enough, Zach, that's what we're going to kind of be talking about today. So it plays in very well 
but I think one of my one of my favorite moments from the camp was when uh, we had one of our our guests. Her name is is Stephanie, and she brand new hunter, never hunted before, and uh, came in, you know, put shots through the rifle, got comfortable on the rifle, then went out that evening and shot a pig. And, uh, you know, we came back and if folks want, we'll like stage it on a rock and take a picture. And, uh, I, I recognize this as we were taking the pictures, just like Stephanie was just very like solemn. She wasn't sad. She wasn't upset. She wasn't like happy or anything like that. She was just, just like very blank face. And in my mind, I was like, you know, I'm not going to shout at her like, Hey, smile, you know, uh, which could be typical of a lot of folks because that was really her moment. And I recognize like to not everyone like is your first harvest or is any harvest going to be, you know, this big joyous moment. But after that I mentioned to her and I was like, I noticed you didn't smile. And I was like, that's perfectly okay. Uh, I was like, it's your, your moment, your emotion. Like, it's not up to me to tell you to smile or how to feel. Like, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to sort of like process that yourself. And she was like, she was pretty, uh, I think that was encouraging her here, but great. She ended up shooting another pig as well and did a very noble thing and was like, I've got plenty of meat. I will give it away to someone who did not shoot a pig this weekend. And I was like, that says a lot about somebody who just started hunting to be like, no, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to take this other animal that I have home. I'd rather instead share it with, uh, with my fellow hunters. So I think that's a pretty cool, cool thing that happened. And I uh, was excited to see it play out, but overall great camp. Uh, we do have two more camps on the books for 2023. So anybody looking to, uh, get involved in that experience and come down and join us in Texas, uh, head over to our website. Um, I think it's, uh, harvestingnature.com slash wild food camps or something like that. If you go to the website, it's right up in the top menu. But yeah, two pig camps. Hopefully, uh, we're pending confirmation for a couple other camps uh, we should know about in January. So hopefully once that works out, we'll get a couple more camps on the books. But definitely a fun time. Uh, outside of that, just getting ready for the holidays. Really excited. And uh, waterfowl season is upon us. So uh, wrapped up big game and now focusing towards waterfowl. Um, Colin, what kind of updates you got so, for us? I can't bro? remember the last time I was on if I talked about um, the elk hunt that I went with my uh, friend from work on. Did I talk about that? I think it's at least a month. Did I, I don't know, think yeah. you did. Uh, but so the only updates I have from that is I, I did a uh, deer season in Pennsylvania over Thanksgiving. Uh, it was on private land guy that my mom works with he's got a bunch of deer that walk through his land backs up to the state game lands like right in the shadow of the appalachian trail so pretty like classic pa whitetail country um no bucks but and i passed up a really big doe and a couple small ones on the first day uh just waiting for a buck to come by and then didn't really see anything the next day or the following so then the last day that i had out there was the fourth day uh that was probably like 8 30 in the morning Little tiny doe comes rolling up, just you know, happy-go-lucky, and uh, I wasn't really being picky at that point. Um, so I cleared a shot her at like 65 yards. Uh, she ran a few a few yards, and then, uh, yeah, she fell over. But, uh, yeah, it was a smaller doe, but I wasn't really being picky on the last day, so I took it down to the processor, and uh, I think my mom's bringing it out for the holidays in her check bags. So. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds like you guys had a better uh, big game season than I've had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I could pick oh, this man. thing up with both hands. So I was like, uh, you know, okay, it wasn't a, it wasn't a monster by any means, but uh, you know, there's so many deer in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to complain. Uh, and then other than that, I got my Oregon landowner fur taking license so that I can trap the raccoons that keep trying to come in and kill my chickens. Uh, so I've trapped one so far, and that's currently under about a half inch of salt in my garage. Uh, probably going to turn that one into a hat. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. The big question is, are you going to try the raccoon? No, I'm not even going to mess with raccoons. Nope. What? No? no not out here. If I can trap and try otter... You can definitely try raccoon. Uh, raccoon, yeah, yeah. Maybe the next one. We'll see what comes, what happens. Yeah. So I, I will tell you too, and I'll, I'll let the sort of cat out of the bag on this. We were gonna wait and post on, on uh, the website and stuff, but it, it'll still get there anyway. Um, we did, we tried coyote this yeah. weekend at, at the ranch, and so. If anybody's ever kind of listened to the show, you like understand sort of where we are with coyotes and like they definitely have their place in the ecosystem. I'm not a big like, oh, let's go out and, you know, shoot all the predators type deal. Like not my jam. Uh, the ranch we were hunting at had a problem with coyotes getting in and, and uh, they have some exotics on part of the ranch that we hunt at. And some of the coyotes were getting into their fences and chasing and they actually had this giant audad while we were there, they found it dead in the road. And what happened, they suspect a coyote was chasing it and it tripped and fell and broke its neck. So, which is just wild to I think mean, of. Can you really blame the coyote for that? <laughs> that sounds just like a dumb animal. <laughs> no, no. But, yeah. But, so they, they, had, uh, they had put snares out. Uh, and snared a coyote and so they brought it back and and we're i was like this is one of those things like i think i want to try coyote because i've heard a lot of mixed reviews about it um but i will say that uh adam berkelmans and i put our heads together and came up with some pretty amazing recipes uh we cooked it three different ways we did like a, a variation of a korean dog soup and we did these like Cajun bites, and then we did a uh, like a Vietnamese like spicy chili recipe. So like, uh, it turned out much better than I thought. It was not great during the cleaning process. I think the stress of like being in the snare uh, caused all like the adrenaline stuff to get into its blood, and it just like the blood and everything just smelled really really bad. But once we got it in and cleaned up and cooked it was like it it reminded me of like bear meat and it's like kind of uh it had that like irony flavor that bear has just like a a, a little different but no complaints yeah. we'll see about the next raccoon i don't know i might just go relocate that one because <laughs> uh, i don't want to just like waste them all but i do want to keep them from getting into my chickens so yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's fair. Anyway, there I pulled. There was a lot of fat on that too. When I was flushing it out and everything, there was like some half inch of fat in some parts laying on it. Wow. You're gonna I render it raccoon it. fat? Time. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I can see the look of disappointment. <laughs> that's on your fair. Face. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, okay. Um, well, let's see. All right. Well, I guess I'll introduce Zach. 
Uh, we've already had some good conversations. So, uh, our guest today is a hunter, trapper, author, husband, and father. His latest book is about his journey from a cushy suburban lifestyle to a life in the wilderness of Idaho, learning to hunt, trap, and live off the grid along the way. Please welcome Zach Hansen to the Wild Fishing Game Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Uh, excited to chat uh, about this. So first off, could you tell us sort of a little bit about yourself and sort of your, I mentioned it slightly, but your your evolution into the world of hunting and fishing and wild food? Yeah, sure. So um, obviously I cover a lot of it in the book. However, you know, I am an adult onset hunter. I did not get an interest in hunting until my late 20s. I actually grew up in South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee area. I was always surrounded by hunters, but for whatever reason, you know, mostly because my family didn't hunt, I never got into it. Uh, and then in my late 20s with my ex-wife at the time, I started to get more curious. I'd always been athletic, wrestled, did jujitsu, always watched what we ate. And then I got the notion of like, mm -hmm. well, what are we eating and started to look into the nutritional facts of the meat we were purchasing from the grocery store. Started learning about all the hormones, which naturally led me down the path of, hey, there's a pretty big movement of eating natural meats. Of course, with that, unless you're paying for something off of a, a farm, per se, you're going to have to go hunt it. So I kind of went down this path of getting hunt curious. Decided that bow hunting was the thing I wanted to do, so I got a hand-me-down bow from a friend who was about my size, though it turned out the bow was not fit for me at all, uh, and kind of learned on my own. And actually, the first hunt I ever did was a pig hunt where I ended up being unsuccessful, uh, and then a deer hunt, and then went through a divorce and ended up in Idaho and went full bore just into the off-grid lifestyle and just beat down that learning curve with a vengeance. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. That sounds like a hell of a journey, uh, for sure. So how, how long have you been in Idaho now? You know, almost going on four years. So a little pre-pandemic, I ended up coming out here immediately post-divorce, and it was somewhat by luck um, that my ex-wife and I had actually taken a vacation to Idaho the year before our divorce, and I told her when we were up here, in the Saltus on the north side in Stanley that we're going to move here one day. She kind of looked at me funny and said, yeah, maybe after my 20 years with the Federal Bureau of Investigations up, we can talk about it. I'm like, it's going to happen. But what I didn't realize was that within the year, I'd have that opportunity. And again, when that did occur, I just grabbed the bull by the proverbial horns and literally just drove my car and my bag of stuff up to Idaho and started looking for properties immediately. Nice. What part, what part of Idaho are you in again? It, yeah, so Colin, I am in Atlanta, Idaho, which okay. is a place in Idaho that most Idahoans don't know about. Uh, it is a town of 30. <laughs> now, we just had our second kid, so now we are up to 38 year-round residents. Uh, we have no grocery store, no gas station. Uh, we run our own power we're down an 80-mile dirt road that is often, in the winter, avalanched in or in the summer, rock slid in. One way in, one way out. Um, wow. It, that's all we got out here. Yeah. Holy smokes. So how um, – you're definitely like – that is like 
almost as off the grid it, as you can get. I would imagine at times completely. Yeah, cut it off. is known as the most rural village, is what is classified in Idaho, but um, congregation of people in the lower forty-eight. Wow. So what what does a person do whenever you're like secluded and like what's the longest point you've been sort of secluded from from civilization? Probably I guess? a month or two, um, to be frank, like where we're just kind of cut off. And that's where it gets really important. And, you know, I talk about it in the book, too, is beating down that learning curve, um, going from mm-hmm. suburban life to quickly learning to hunt and being out there and figuring out all of the preparedness things, whether that's food in the freezer, having a generator to keep that freezer actually cold, you know, having wood for your wood burning stoves, you know, well secured that where it's not going to get covered in snow. Um, you know, those are a little bit of a foreshadowing of some of the hard lessons I've learned, but yeah, it is, uh, it can be hard living, which is exactly what I was looking for. Do you, do you find it, do you find you're satisfied in your choice? Are yeah, you happy? It's funny. So, you know, I'm actually, my wife and I, we, we ended up getting a place in Boise as kind of a little backup residence because we have two young kids. We have two under two. So this past year, we ended up getting a small home in Boise uh, because we were having to come back and forth for doctor's appointments and things like that. So at this point in time, we're usually about like a week in Boise and then we'll be three to four weeks up at the cabin. Um, but holy shit, within 48 hours of being in Boise, which is not a big metropolis by any stretch of the imagination, mm-hmm. both her and I are climbing the walls ready to be back up at the cabin. It's like, it's one of those things you can't <laughs> reverse from once you've kind of tasted it and felt it. No, that's, I, I can relate with that. I do enjoy the seclusion of being out in the woods for sure especially when when things get crazy and i live in denver which is which isn't is a metropolis and it's a it's a it's a bit overbearing sometimes just like trying to get home from work you're just like man this is so frustrating like why are all these people out right now um so i can totally relate with with uh some of your thoughts there um so sort of thinking about uh, kind of what you got going on, this is one of Corey's favorite questions. I'm going to go ahead and ask it. Normally I save it till towards the end, but I'm going to ask it now. Is Like uh, what do you got going on in your freezer right now? And like what's, uh, what's something you're looking forward to cooking up next? Yeah, so ironically in my journey, which started kind of like big game hunting, you know, I got my first mm-hmm. – a white-tailed deer in Tennessee was the first animal I harvested and harvested with my bow. Um when I came out to Idaho, I was just dead set on elk, right? That's just kind of the thing. I did elk, pronghorn, but I got my fur bearers license as well and ended up starting to trap at the same time. And honestly, my passion has really aligned with trapping and specifically water trapping up where we're at. So my Mm -hmm. freezer is chock full to the brim with beaver. Um, I have a couple beaver pelts that I did couple days ago that I was too lazy to flesh because I ran out of time. So I just, you know, skinned them and folded them and put them in there to flesh, uh, in a week or so when I get a little bit more time over the holidays, but yeah, beaver, beaver has really kind of become our staple go-to mostly because I suck at big game hunting. It turns out, um, but <laughs> you know, uh, it's worked out pretty well for us. 
That's awesome. Um, I guess, yeah, I, I've yet to try uh, beaver, so I'm, I'm pretty excited. I, I have plans this year too. That's one of the things. So my daughter got her hunter safety card here last month, and that's one of the things that's on her list. She's like, I want to go out and like, I want to trap a beaver, and and try it. So I like, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. But everybody I talked to has had nothing but positive things to say about it. So uh, they say a lot like. Uh, very tender venison but kind of of a different different flavor yeah i i would most relate it to pork like a store-bought pork yeah. not a not a wild pig um and that's what my wife kind of aligned with too because we've smoked them most of the time like at least mm-hmm. eat and we'll do like a pulled barbecue pork sandwich it's kind of been our staple and just slow cooking it and not really brining or anything but it's it's really good. It's not oily like a lot of people assume. A lot of people think mm-hmm. it's an oily meat. It's not, um, but very tender. We like it, and the tails are great too. Um, you know, we've done that a few different ways, but my favorite way with cooking beaver tail is, you know, I've always had a fascination with mountain men from the eighteen sixties mm-hmm. or thirties to sixties, and you know, one of the things I always read about and saw, like in Jeremiah Johnson books like that was you know eating the tail so these mountain men would use that because it had such rich fat and i'm a huge fan of steak fat um you know just growing up like good marbled ribeye you know before i got into the wild game that was the creme de la creme for me so a beaver tail is kind of just like a giant glob of good ribeye fat and it's freaking awesome you just kind of cook it over an open fire peel those scales back and you just have this you know just dense blob of awesome so highly recommended so what wait what so what do you do with it from there as far as like consuming it you just kind of eat it off the tail or you slice it or you can slice spread it. it on bread yeah when we do it around like the fire and with a couple guys that i've been up there with we'll just take a you know gerber knife or whatever you got in your pocket and just kind of scrape the scales off and then scrape a little yeah, piece off and throw it in your mouth you know just like you would any good like kobe beef type fat and just kind of let it sure. melt in your mouth, and it's good. I'm picturing Colin doing this with raccoon, just minus the tail. <laughs> just little fat, little chitlin bits. Yeah, just little raccoon bits. So that raccoon tail was the hardest thing I've ever had to like try and flesh out. Like, I don't have one of the little tail tools, so I was trying to oh, cut down the middle yep. and like tear it out. I ended up like tearing the tail in half, so I got to sew that back together. But yeah, there's gonna be like an inch of tailbone left in there that I just can't get out. Maybe once it's done trying out or something. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was very difficult to get the tail out. Did you save the bacula? Uh, no, I did not. That would be the penis. Oh, okay. I mean, it's in my trash can right now. I'm gonna be able to go out and get it before the trash truck picks it up tomorrow. <laughs> I will save. After getting my fur bearer yeah. license, and my friends can attest, the best part about it is being able to send your friends legit cocktail stirs. Yeah. <laughs> just little point. Maybe I have to go out and grab it. So you're missing out if you're not taking advantage of that. Yeah, I'll add it to my house of oddities. I got a couple things up here so far. I got a back scratcher made out of a pheasant foot. Uh, a couple snake skins, some random skulls here and there. Yeah, so. Yeah, that would be a good thing to add, though. So what's uh, what's 
Zach, what's on the docket for your your next big adventure? What do you got for the rest of your your hunting season? I know it's starting to get get pretty chilly up there in Idaho. Oh yeah, we got a uh, forty inches of snow over the past two weeks, so the the sled is out in full force. So I'm pulling, you know, all my trapping stuff. So rest of the year is all trapping. So Bobcat opens yesterday. Hey, <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm behind the eight ball on that one. So bobcats open. I still have a lot of beaver to, to catch, um, mostly because, A, it's beaver season, but two, where we're at, I'm really the only person trapping anymore, and the beaver have mm-hmm. caused a lot of damage. They actually slow down our little dam we have on the river to run our electric, so you know our electric co-op likes when I catch the beaver upstream who are slowing down the water flow. Uh, and they also wash out our road, which is our one way in, one way out, and have caused millions of dollars of damage. So I'll be continuing to do beaver. Um, I'd hopefully love to get another otter this season. That was a surprise for me, and I had my first otter a couple of weeks ago. Um, but the so, oh, go ahead. So you mentioned that. Sorry, you mentioned that earlier, like taste in otter. Like what? What was that experience? How did that come about? So I was trapping beaver. Um, Actually, I have a permit with Idaho Fish and Game for a year-round beaver uh, kill permit on the road Mm -hmm. going into and out of Atlanta, Idaho. The reason being is uh, I'm the chairman of the Rural Atlanta Highway Commission. So we run our operators and our loaders and everything to try to keep the road clear. And as I mentioned, beaver can cause a lot of damage. They'll often chew trees and, you know, block the road. Or they'll build a dam and flood the road, which is even more expensive. So I have the opportunity to go out and harvest problem beaver um, if the need arises. Mm-hmm. I'm very judicious about it. It's not just willy-nilly. It's, you know, it has to be a legitimate problem. Um, but when I was out doing some problem beaver trapping a couple of weeks ago before the season started, I had an otter that was caught in a foothold trap on a drowning wire was able to take it into fish and game and keep it and get the pelt tag and all that good stuff. A huge otter. Uh, ended up measuring five and a half feet from nose to tail. Um, absolutely wow. ginormous. Um, but one of the things that I've kind of made a commitment to do is to try all the meat I at least harvest. I mean, I will always save the carcasses for bait for Martin and other animals that I'm allowed to bait in Idaho. Um, but I always try at least a little bit, including like the fox, the coyotes. And I decided to try otter too. And it tastes like a disgusting trout mixed with burnt hair. How, how did you prepare it? I just smoked it. And that's kind of like my initial go-to. Like I will try okay. some like, if it's a meat that I can foresee myself eating again, we'll get a little more adventurous with some of the recipes. But my staples just kind of like wrap it in some bacon, throw it on the smoker and see what happens. Um, <laughs> and it was not good Ooh, okay noted uh we'll put that one on the list to try though because yeah, i'm too i'm a firm believer of, of giving it a, a a double triple try i would do it again especially if i had someone with a little more culinary prowess such as yourself at the helm uh but yeah i can definitely provide it and then we can see if we can make it taste a little better I may I may take you up on that. I got some plans next year on some some projects. So, well, we'll if you see. want some weird animals, you can come up to Idaho, and I'm sure I'll have a freezer. For <laughs> Perfect. Well, I may I may actually be up your way in March. So, well, I don't know if I'll be up that far, but I'll be in the area. 
Super. Um, well, I was that leads into a very good next question I had, which was, have you ever had uh, some wild game meals that, that just didn't work out for you? I guess otters well, on the otters list. up there, but I have a buddy, uh, <laughs> Stephen Makovich, who came up and uh, bear hunted with me in May. He's a guy we had met each other through LinkedIn, similar interests uh, in the hunting space. And he and his brother-in-law came out and, you know, we got on some bear, but in between we had a lot of ground squirrels and, you know, I had hunted regular old big gray squirrels in the Southeast before and eaten those mm-hmm. really good, you know, especially like in a gravy or, you know, fried, however you want to do it. So you know, we were sitting there and I had ground squirrels that were digging holes all over the place. So we decided to just plink one or two and give them a try. And similarly, it was pretty bad. <laughs> they didn't have like a lot of fat or anything on it, but it was, uh, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just my palate. Like my go-to description of something I don't like seems to be burnt hair, but it has that same kind of less trouty burnt hair flavor that the otter did it just it didn't work out well and was not very enjoyable even with like a little bit of thyme and other stuff sprinkled onto it for some you know pizzazz but not my not my favorite meal yeah i could see Ooh, i don't know um i I find it weird too like i'm out here you know in colorado and like we've got some tiny squirrels here Mm -hmm. it's just wild uh the the bang for the buck is not the same as it is in the eastern eastern Do you part have of the states. Gray squirrels or Douglas squirrels or something else. Um, we have pine squirrels. Okay. Um, we've got some others. The one the most one most recent uh, I shot was pine squirrel, which I thought was ironically small. And that's what we yeah. have up here: pine um, squirrels and little black squirrels. Yeah. I got Douglas yeah, we get squirrels pine out squirrels, here. Albert squirrels. Are, they're kind of brown and then tan on the underside. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting, still waiting for them to come mm-hmm. by my uh, my feeders out here. Pick one of those bad boys off. It's <laughs> a sandwich. <laughs> and then we have fox. We have fox squirrels here too. So those are kind of the three, the three main species in Colorado. But um, yeah, not like those. Not big, big meaty babies down, down south, in, yeah. in the east too. Yeah. Um. So Cor- Corey's got a note here too. Uh, so you you also involve your kids in sort of your outdoor adventures. What uh, one? What motivated you to sort of bring them into the fold? And and two, what what does that look like when you take them out? Um. Well, first and foremost, we have two under two. Like we have a almost two year old. Um, and she's been out on my trap lines with me. Um, I just carry her out in the sled and it's really cute. Actually, a, it's a good workout for me dragging her through snow. But like when we went out, (laughs) pulled out some beaver and otter, like she knows the animal. She's really smart and she'll be like beaver. She just says beaver, like Justin Bieber. Um, so she's more (laughs) like beaver and you know, she'll go up and pet it and try to give it a hug, which is weird and cute all at the same time. Um, but, you know, for me to answer your question, not growing up in the in a hunting family, um, I feel like I missed out on a lot in that respect. So my mm-hmm. wife and I are very passionate about just being honest with our kids about what and where food comes from that we eat. Um, obviously, sure. 
under two, it's very hard for them to get that concept, but we still just believe in like a, for our own sanity, like not censoring our own selves and stopping the things we love to do. Um, so just taking the kids with us instead of not going as well as just exposing them to it. You know, blatantly they should pick up on some things like, okay, you know, this beaver is no longer alive. Even if I give it a hug (laughs) and you know, They'll come down into the room like when I'm skinning or fleshing an animal out and they'll be like, ooh, and then want to touch and you know, we'll let them touch when it's safe and make sure we wash their hands and all that good stuff. But, you know, it's just about exposure at that point. You know, I have no expectations for either of my kids to either love hunting and trapping or hating it. It's just going to be exposing them to what we do and have chosen for my wife mm-hmm. and I and, you know, Hopefully they'll they'll have an interest in it and that'll be great. And if not, that's okay too. It's not like this has been my whole life. It hasn't. So, you know, I can definitely relate to people who haven't grown up with that. And if my kids choose not to, that's okay. But it'd be a little bit of a bummer. <laughs> but Yeah. I mean I, I think and this has happened, you know, I've seen it happen in my own house and then with friends and stuff, like something that you're really passionate about, like kids recognize like that passion and like gravitate to, towards it, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in most accords, at least for the early part of their years. And then as they get older, they may choose to take a different path. And I think my daughter's like the perfect example of like, she really, she really likes hunting. She really connects with the food aspect of it. And like, that's what sort of motivated her to get out, uh, to want to start hunting herself. And then, you know, we'll see, like life's going to, course give her a different course i'm sure than it gave me so that may or may not be conducive to hunting or it may be something like hey you know back when i was younger i used to go hunting and fishing with my dad all the time but now i just i I don't have the time or i can't or you know whatever so yeah i'm excited to see how it goes obviously i have my own uh mental images of us going elk hunting every september on horseback and you know yeah season comes around and she flies home from college just to do that which i know is all just pie in the sky but i'm gonna dream until i'm proven wrong <laughs> well, that's what i told uh i told my daughter this year uh said i'm gonna start putting you in for preference points in like different places around the the u.s that way when you turn like 18 19 20 we can go on these really cool hunts because you'll have like 10 years of preference points and can draw the like yep. really cool so units that's like the ultimate chat move man I, I didn't even think about that yeah, I mean, start start getting those preference points now. So, sorry, Colin, yeah, what did you say? The, like those youth mentorship programs and everything where you start building up points. Like I know Oregon has that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, Colorado does too. Unfortunately, she can't hunt big game until she's 12 here, but there's, you know, there's opportunities yeah. in other states where, like, the youth tags are actually weighted in a lot of the draws. Like, they dedicated a certain percentage to youth tags, then to resident tags, then to non-resident. So it's it's really kind of cool to see that. So we'll probably play with the system a little bit next year and see, uh, you know, out-of-state stuff, see where, where she may end up. I think she she intends to go to the May pig camp uh, next year. So that will actually be a really good avenue for her to, like, learn from some of the bests uh, – not not tooting my own horn much much so tooting the horn of others but uh to to sort of uh get the full experience and like kind of a you know a semi-controlled environment which will be good because you know she's like hey here's the pig time to gut it and clean it and she's like i don't know if i want to do this anymore like that's okay we'll just we'll get there so no cool cool stuff
Well, let's let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk some about your book. Um, you want to kind of give us give us the overview, uh, sort of about your book. Pretend we've never read it because you know the listeners may or may not have read it, and then uh, then we'll go a little bit more in depth after that. Certainly. So this is the book. If nothing else, there it is. It has a really cool cover that will look good on your bookshelf, even if the writing sucks. So <laughs> we'll, we'll start with that. Um, no, the book honestly came about from a my love of writing. I do some fiction writing in the Western genre. I've written another book before, so it's kind of like my cathartic outlet. So I ended up getting with the mm-hmm. publisher. They liked the concept, so we worked through it. Actually, with Tucker Max down in Austin, Texas. I don't know if you guys have ever read the books. I hope they serve beer in hell. Yeah. He's New York Times best. Mm-hmm. Author. I have. Um, yep. So you know he helped me write the intro. <laughs> if you like the intro, then you'll you'll know who. Uh, whose fingers kind of were over that too. Um, But the book is just about that journey. Like I talked about that kind of suburban sedation I was feeling, which I carried for a long time, which was I lived a life with my ex-wife where we were just trying to keep up with the Joneses. It was, you know, do we have the nice house? Sure. Check. We both have good jobs. I was working in artificial intelligence. She was a special agent with the FBI we were moving around a bunch. We had the nice car, all that stuff. And I found myself trying to find fulfillment in things outside of work. I just wasn't happy with it. So I would do ultra marathons. You know, I've done jujitsu since I was 15. I do competitions. It was always like these physical outlets so I could feel pain and consequence. But it was something I never experienced in a day-to-day world, which is about the time I got hunt curious. And the book is about that kind of crux where I was kind of reaching the top of that pendulum of just being completely sedate and bored and unhappy, though I had gotten all the things that our society that I grew up in, at least, was telling me, you know, this this is what you need to be happy. Go get a college degree, get a graduate degree, get married, have your white picket fence, you know, be able to go out and get drinks whenever you want, and you'll be happy. And I was not happy. And then came the divorce, you know, probably a byproduct of some of the other unhappiness, I'm sure. And I just decided to take that leap of faith that I guess was really pretty quickly after um, starting my hunting journey. So I was very green and I just went all in. And that's what the book's about. And the book is mostly chronicling all of my mishaps, um, you know, from harvesting my first deer and thinking that we'd have a processor open, but it was Sunday in Tennessee and they were closed and we had to be forced to actually field dress it ourselves. Um, you know, with like an iPhone popped up between the deer's rigor mortis legs, uh, trying to really believe that every single YouTube content creator on how to gut a deer was really not joking us when they said start at the butthole. Um, you know, we went through like 12 different you know, content creators before we were like, okay, we're doing this. Um, But then similarly, as I grew, so it talks about my elk hunting, mule deer, bear, a lot about learning to flesh and, you know, do all my own taxidermy and hide tanning, Um, obviously the water trapping, wolf trapping and the whole lot. But the book kind of rounds out at the end, kind of talking about my own kind of personal progression of community. Uh, Because at the end of the day, I moved to this little town of 35 people after this divorce with the intention of being a mountain man and not talking to a single soul. But what it turned out for me was, though I wanted life of consequence and everything in the small town, 
the community is something you really have to have and kind of resetting with a small community was really necessary for me because I wanted to shun everybody. But then I quickly realized that I would drown, you know, sometimes literally instead of figuratively without the, the community around there who put aside my own kind of curmudgeonly attitude and was always willing to help me when I needed it. Like when I couldn't start a fire or I couldn't do, you know, something basic for people off grid. So that's kind of the crescendo of the book, but it's just a hopefully pretty humorous journey of my learning and hopefully will encourage people who may be thinking about getting into hunting, but might be scared for some of the truly scary aspects of it, like gutting a deer for the first time or, you know, getting your hand caught in a trap when you're learning on your own and, you know, letting people know it's okay to learn by trial and error. And maybe you can look at some of my errors and not make the egregious ones like I did. So do you think that's kind of a, a, a lot of the motivation sort of behind you wanting to ride it is just to sort of uh, education, the hopes of sharing the your journey and learning from it? Or do you think there's more? That's a hard question. So the persona that I was writing for was like the sedate, middle-aged man or woman in a cubicle somewhere who's gone through the pandemic, saw toilet paper fly off the shelf, and they have that latent thought that, okay, if shit hits the fan, the grid goes down, and, you know, whatever they tell themselves outwardly, but inwardly they know their kids are going to die because they don't know how to feed them in that situation. So that's the persona that I was writing to is all those people that were like me who, despite how tough they might you know, make themselves look on the outside, they don't know how to survive. And I want people to know that it's okay to have those feelings and you can actually go and learn, you know, and there's a lot Mm -hmm. better opportunities like your pig camp. Um, These other things that are available to people that, you know, frankly were available to me. I was just too stupid to realize they were and went and learned the hard way. But, you know, there are options out there and you don't have to live in that fear, even if you hold it deep inside of you like I did. And what I found out after the book's being out, you know, it's been selling well to the bestseller list and people are reaching out and saying like, wow, you have been able to describe exactly how I feel and I want to explore this. And, you know, it's interesting and I'm so glad guys like you have these or, you know, are putting together these types of experiences for people to do it in a controlled environment because a lot of people are comfortable in that space. Um, mm-hmm. and need that kind of structure around it. And I think it's amazing. And I'm sure you're getting the same feedback from people or like Stephanie, uh, the woman you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast who went and harvested her first pig. You know, There's all these emotions that people don't realize that are tied up in providing for yourself or your family. And it can be overwhelming at times. And you know, I just think it's amazing what you guys are doing. And I think it ties in well with this, at least the message that I'm trying to get out to people too. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, you know, it's something at the end of the camp, like, you know, I got up and thanked everybody for there. And I was like, so now it's, it's your duty to, to share with others. Right. And I was like, don't, I'm not talking about this from like a business perspective. I'm talking about this from like a hunter perspective, like someone that, that wants to share. Like I, I enjoy the educational aspect of it, but I also, you know, have a very like, I feel a moral obligation to be like, I know these things, but it shouldn't be just me that knows it, right? If you want to know it, I'll teach you. 
And sometimes if you don't want to know it, I'll still teach you. But, you know, uh, either way, like that's what I told him. I was like, go out, share this, share these experiences and these moments with your friends, with your family and like explain to them the emotions you had, you know, tell them what it was like the first time you shot a pig and like we handed you a knife and we're like, all right, we're going to clean it now. Like those are real world things. And those are things too that you don't get watching TV or reading a book or like Mm -hmm anything like you have to be in that moment in there. And I think that's, that's sort of, uh, when we were discussing your book initially to bring you onto the show, I was like, that is that like realness. That's the connection that, that I value so much with the outdoors is like people have made video games about hunting mm-hmm. and about fishing and all those things, but they don't compare like at all to like what you what you're going through in those moments in the outdoors, trying to figure it out. I mean, Colin's an Colin's an adult onset hunter as well. I grew up hunting, but definitely have taken numerous breaks in life, and still like no no matter the years that I've hunted, I still have problems that I face. That I'm like, this sucks. Like I have to figure this out. How do I figure it out? And it's just like that's part of it, man. Yeah, and I think that's one of those things, like, from an emotional maturity perspective. Like, if you want to become an emotionally mature person, start hunting or trapping. Because it's going to test you. And, you know, this is one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is the the morality lines that you'll find about yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, fox trapping. One of the first things, like, the first canine that I started trapping. We have a ton up there. They do a number on some of the fawns and, you know, I got so far into trapping and I started processing furs to sell at the fur auctions, you know, a part of Idaho Trappers Association. And, you know, I started talking to fur buyers when I would go to these shows. And, you know, one of the things I'd always get dinged about with my furs is that they'd have a 22 hole, you know, either in the you know, near the ear or in the head or wherever I was dispatching the animal. And, you know, one of them suggested I watch this Amazon, you know, video on Trapper Jake. He's this old school trapper, I think from New Mexico or Arizona. But he'd always go up to his animals, coyotes, foxes in a foothold trap and just bop them on the head with a pipe. And it looked so easy like it looked like there was absolutely zero suffering from the animal like he had done it so many times he was so swift with it it actually seemed like a completely you know easy way to go out and it preserved your pelt so this was in the back of my head for a long long time i'd still been going up to all these animals shooting them quick death easy uh very humane but one of the days it was raining i was out checking trap lines i had a fox And I don't know what came over me, but there was a log that looked about like a pipe sitting next to me, you know, probably yay big, you know, maybe two inches in diameter. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to leave my gun in the car. I'm going to do this. And I walked up to this fox and I bopped it on the head and I looked down and this bloody fox is looking up at me like, what did you just do to me? And it sat down. And my daughter has this stuffed fox that she loves. And that's all I could think about while I was looking at this fox and I bashed it again. And it still wasn't dead. And I made this fox suffer. And I literally sat there and cried afterwards. I ended up going and getting my gun and dispatching the right way. But, you know, I found that line of morality for me. And that, that's, that's too much for me. Like, it's not worth, you know, an extra dollar 
for a pelt during the first season. And I'm not knocking anybody who does it because they probably do it better than I did. But my point is when you go out there and you either do something like that or you make a bad shot on a deer and you know you have to watch this animal suffer and make a decision on how you handle that, the emotional maturity it takes to make those right decisions in that time frame, like you can really grow as a human just by experiencing these things. And to your point, you can only do that by being out there. You can't read that in my book and learn it. You can't watch a meat eater episode and learn that. But you have to recognize if you put yourself out there, you're putting yourself out there to make those mistakes. And as an adult onset hunter, that is hard when you run into those situations. I'm sure Colin, you yeah. probably had stuff like that that's happened to you. And it sucks, but it's a growth opportunity. Yeah, time and time again. I'm actually pretty glad I didn't shoot an elk my first season out here because I was definitely unprepared. Like mm -hmm. freezer space, cooler space, you know, knowledge. So, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. I think, I think it was in, you know, I was telling somebody this at the camp too. I was like, I started hunting probably like with family, like eight, nine, ten years old. And I was like, man, I wish, I wish through like my early years of hunting, like I would have had the perspective that like some of the folks at the camps had that were like, this is their first time. Like I probably would have had like the passion and not that I wasn't passionate about it, but like my perspective would have been way different. And like just the way that I listen to things and I approach things and like even, you know, like you mentioned, Zach, like catching yourself in those scenarios, like as, you know, teenage Justin would have approached that fox probably way different than, you know, 36 year old yeah. Justin uh, would now. And I just like, yeah, I'm it's wild, man. Yeah. To think about it. I think it's great though. I love it. I love seeing folks come in and it's just like the level of maturity and seriousness and understanding of like, this is not just something we do. This is something that I chose to do because I've thought it out and I, I really am like, you know, I'm really hopeful to begin, I guess is, is sort of the perspective I've, I've seen. Yeah. And I think for me, like you mentioned, 18 year old, Justin versus 36 year old, Justin, same thing. 36 year old, Zach versus 18 year old, Zach, like despite having to, beat down the learning curve as an adult personally i'm thankful because 17 year old zach was an asshole and you know i'm sure i would not have had the respect for the animals that they needed not i'm not saying that i would have been out there doing you know egregious things i wouldn't have mm -hmm. but i wouldn't have had the respect i probably would have been more prone to wanton waste you know like i i I would not have been thinking about taking every sever of rib meat unless I had been brought up like that, which maybe I would have, who knows. But mm -hmm. it's like for me now, like as an adult, again, with the emotional maturity that I have from a lifetime of, you know, other experiences, I want to leverage every bit of the animal. Like I want to honor it as cheesy as that can sound and hokey as it can sound. It's like, okay, well, what can we do with every part of the animal? Um, you know, whether it's reuse for bait, cooking it, you know, bleaching the skulls or, you know, saving the baculum, you know, just for novelties, but how do we actually leverage everything? Sure. So I want to go back around to sort of the, the beginning a little bit, and this is not as much about, about the book as it is about sort of your journey, but what was that like? What was that sort of aha moment? You hit on, you hit slightly on it earlier in the introduction, but like your journey 
to begin hunting, what was that moment, the moment you were like, this is what I need to do. And sort of like, how did that build up to that? Yeah. Um, again, so my ex-wife and I, you know, we're still friends. She's a good, really good woman, but you know, we were so deep into athletics. Like I said, like high level competition, jujitsu, like traveling to Paris, traveling to all these different places, doing world competitions. And I was doing endurance running. So 60 milers at the time. And, you know, everything revolved around nutrition for us, everything. So like, no matter what athletic endeavor it was, we didn't have kids, you know, so it was literally let's meal prep, let's do all this stuff. Let's, you know, do count our macros and all this other miserable shit we were doing to try to optimize our performance and whatnot. Uh, but you know, it was like boiling chicken and cutting it up and weighing it out and all this different stuff. And that was the catalyst because I had a friend who was hunting and he's like, here, you want some deer meat? I'm like, well, what's the macros in that? And he's like, awesome. I don't know. And then when I actually looked it up, it really was like pretty awesome. Like from a, a lean protein perspective, you know, we cooked it up, you know, gifted. Um, and then for, at that point, my wife did come from a hunting family. So my father-in-law had been a deer hunter in middle Tennessee his whole life. So they had freezer full of deer meat. And when they found out, or rather, when we found out that we actually liked deer meat from the little bit we got from a friend, you know, we phoned into the father-in-law and said, Hey, do you have deer meat? He's like, Oh, hell yeah. I got a lot. So next time we went home, we came home with a cooler of deer meat and we ate through it. So it was eating through that, you know, whether it was real or not seeing a kind of physical change and feeling and like that meat that we were eating versus store-bought ground beef or whatever else we were, you know, counting our carbs on and counting our macros on was the catalyst for me to say, okay, well that meat's really good. How do I get more of it? And I'd call my father and I was like, yeah, you shoot like one or two deer a year. You know, you know, we give some away, you can have some. I'm like, well, that's not enough to sustain us for a year. So how do I get my own deer? And that was the catalyst point that drove me over the edge. And I told my wife at the time and I said, Hey, I'm going to get a bow and arrow. And she laughed at me. She's like, whatever. Give it a whirl. And, uh, you know, I called a buddy and got that hand-me-down Matthews, a single cam that was, you know, I think I'm a 28 and a half draw length. This was like a 26. So I was shooting like this, um, but figured it out. And uh, eventually I went on a pig hunt, failed at that. Then I finally got the courage to call my father-in-law, who I thought, you know, after all these years of marriage, he was going to be like, I don't want you coming hunting on my hunting leases, blah, blah, blah. But as I'm sure both of you have realized, like most people in the hunting community are so open armed if you just ask. And when I finally got the courage mm -hmm. to ask, it was like a master class. He was sending me like Onyx pins. I didn't know what Onyx was at the time. He told me where tree stands <laughs> were, clover patches, soybean fields. I'm like, what, what is all this shit? Uh, and then I went and he like walked me through everything and i realized that for somebody who does hunt seriously it is not just an art but a science you know like it is you know all year prep whether especially like in whitetail land you know you're planting clover patches you're plant like planting soybeans yeah. yep. all these different things and trail cans and you know you know the general path of deer and setting up tree stands in the right way so i got that master class and ended up harvesting my first deer. And then it was, you know, no turning back from there. 
Nice. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I you know, I love hearing the journey in into hunting for folks, but the more and more I, I listen, uh, the more and more I hear the underlying theme of food. Um, which which is crazy because it if you've ever heard or looked into like the R three movement, right? So uh was a recruitment uh, reintroduction and retention. To so, uh, recruitment, retention, reintroduction, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay, dude. Just in reverse order. So, but in that R three doesn't address the culinary aspect of it, which is so interesting because that's like, you know, in the the statistics that I'm just gonna pull from thin air, I would say like eighty percent of folks coming into hunting, you know, as an adult are are coming in for the food. Um, which is, I, I challenge those out there and in, in the R3 world to think about it from that way. Uh, and I'm happy to discuss more uh, because I think it is really valuable. And I think, what's but, um, and I just want to add there too, like, I think it sure. is interesting, but I think part of that's just due to the access to information. You know, health has always been forefront for a big subset of our population, even if it might not look like it from the outside. Um, but <laughs> people are becoming more and more concerned with where their food comes from because they're seeing the ill effects sure. of eating fast food, of high fructose corn syrup, of all these additives and food dyes and you know canola oils and whatever else, you know, rapeseed oil, you know, everything that's in all these foods, people are becoming hip to it because you know information has been democratized to a certain extent. And it's just, it's kind of like that, duh. Like, obviously, at some point, all roads are going to lead back to wild game. And I think we're kind of on that cusp of a huge portion of our population realizing, like, I'm putting shit in my body. I'm putting shit in my kids' bodies. What other options are out there? And other than, like, some really expensive pasture-raised beef or something along those lines, you know, the option is wild game. And I think people are just coming to that natural conclusion more and more. Yeah, and I think uh, I think that that's that's great that folks are coming to the realization. And I mean, it it is. Um, I I'm excited to see though because as we start to lean into a resource, we have to think more and more about management of that resource and sort of the conservation aspect of it and. That's where I think we get some of our biggest conservation advocates is like, hey, you, you love this great food source that's, you know, requires effort to get, but is, is seemingly one, unharmful to the environment and two, like readily abundant in most areas. Well, we kind of have to like control that and have to have our hand in management or else, you know, we get into like scenarios of like market hunting of like the, you know, the early 1800s. Granted, there's all kinds of acts and laws to prevent that, but same, same thought. Like yep. if the entirety of the population of the United States is relying on wild game as our diet, like it's a catch are, 22, are we going right? to no, no doubt. Yeah. There's a total catch 22, but you know, it's an interesting problem worth trying to solve, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think with more hunters come, you know, I would say more educated hunters comes more uh, conservationists and uh, advocates for for proper game management. So I think that's cool. That's that's another piece of we hit on in our camp as well as like we spent a good couple hours uh, with with Leland from the non-led 
partnership. Not not only did he do some like non-lead demos and talks and stuff, but he uh, we went through like the conservation aspect of it and sort of like the intro to the North American model and uh, how like wild pigs came to be and sort of uh, all that great stuff. So I think that is a food source that should be more heavily tapped than anything else in the United States is wild pigs. Like, well, it, I don't think it's not exactly a wild pig, but I don't think we touched on it. But in January, I'm going down to Arizona to do a bow hunt for mule deer and I drew a javelina tag. So hopefully we'll get oh, a cool. javelina too while I'm down there kind of in the cool. piggish family, right? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think so. Don't it's quote me on that. Collins does. A javelina? Yeah. I don't think a javelina is quite feral. I think that's more like a wild, actually wildly occurring animal. No. I think it was a Yeah, javelina or a peccary. That is a peccary. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like, it's, you're Rats. right, it's pig-like, but I knew it's a little bit, it's more like a desert <laughs> animal. Yeah, desert pig. Yeah, pig-like mammal. Yeah. But yeah. I agree, pigs should be, that's an oh. untapped resource. And that's why we're trying to do the camp, get people out there, shoot yep. some pigs, but I mean... We're definitely not going to get them all. So, um, where where can listeners get a hold of your book? Uh, Amazon.com is probably the best place, but you can get it anywhere books are sold. So, Barnes and Noble, Goodreads, um, Walmart, wherever you want to. The book title is Turning Feral. Um, Zachary Craig Hansen is my name, and uh, if listeners like that nonfiction book. Um, I do have my first fiction and a three book series I signed with a publisher called The Bone Scraper, uh, which is a historical fiction. Huh. You know, think uh, I like to call it uh, the book is kind of like Louis L'Amour, the great Western author meets Quentin Tarantino. So a little <laughs> bit of a, a violent historical Western, but it's a lot of fun. That'll be out in January. And then the two other books in the series coming out a little later next year. Um, if you happen to be a fan of my writing. And yeah, other than that, I don't really have social media other than LinkedIn, which is kind of dorky, but you know, it is what it is. Hey, it's it's uh it's how we got here today, so it it worked. <laughs> yeah, it did. I'm so love it. So awesome. Well, um, no, really excited uh, for the opportunity to to chat with you tonight. So, kind of the one of the last things we do towards the end of the show is like give a quick around the room for any last thoughts. So, being that you're the guest today, I'll, I'll give you the opportunity uh, first. So, if if you have anything you want to share with the listeners, yeah, um, I hope to be at one of your pig camps next year. A, uh, B, when you're in Idaho, swing by. We'll go up to Atlanta and do something of the like. And then lastly, C, in this case, I have a trove of frozen beaver meat. So I'll pull some down out of our freezer and get it, uh, you know, on some dry ice and sent down to Colorado. Cool, man. No, I'd love it. Uh, play, play around a little bit with it. Uh, who knows? Maybe it'll end up in a future cookbook. Yeah, we'll I'd love see. that. But, um, yeah. Um, no, awesome. Thanks. Colin? Yeah, I actually have a, it's a two-part question. So I've been trying to get into some Ooh. some amateur taxidermy, trying to like tan hides and stuff. Uh, I've done a couple nutria. I did a roadkill elk last month, uh, which was interesting. Uh, a lot of ticks. I've never seen so many ticks in my life. But uh, And then I'm doing this raccoon right now. Uh, do you use a dryer to break it down after it's all tanned? 
No, I have not. I've always just, I've just broken by hand after I've actually tanned um, everything I've done, including the bear hides, you know, obviously running over ropes, chains, things like that. But no, I I have not used a dryer so far in my tanning process. That's what was recommended to me by the local taxidermist, but I don't know if you can use it. How does... How does the dryer it's not play the heat into it? From the dryer, so you just turn on like no heat. It's the tumbling that breaks down the stiff mm. fibers and makes it into like soft. Because he, I got one back from him that was like, it was like a piece of fabric. It was so soft, and I was like, "How did you do this?" And he's like, "Oh, you're just running the dryer for like hours." And wow. I don't know if well, you could do that in a clothes really? dryer That's though. A it's gonna come out smelling like you know, dried up elk flesh, <laughs> you know. So. Yeah, but yeah. How long does it usually take you to run through, like a say, like a raccoon-sized tide or a beaver pelt or something, to get it nice and soft? Uh, beaver pelts a long time. They're just a really thick yeah. hide. Um, you know, if they're fleshed really well, a little bit quicker. I mean, I'll work a beaver pelt for a couple of days. Yeah. You know, going out there doing like ten minutes at a time. So you're probably looking at a couple hours yeah. total um, to get nice and soft, but. Like a fox hide, you can break with your hands. I mean, they have such a thin flesh. It's super easy to get them nice and soft. Yeah. Um, I just run them over rebar. Um, but it depends. Like the bear hide, when I did my first bear, my wife and I took like pumice stones and broke that bear hide for four days straight after we had tanned it. Ooh. Yeah. Um, so it was a long time yeah. coming. I, growing, growing up as a kid, my uncles would brain tan uh deer and just like watching them that process and then being forced to participate in that process just kind of like turned me off from doing it myself i've done like i did a rattlesnake once uh just because i'd never done it and i thought it was interesting but like outside of that i've i've sworn off i will send it away oil and mink tannery in idaho they do a good job that's for sure nice nice so, all right, Colin, do you have another question? Oh, my, two, my second part of my question was, uh, would you use the same dryer as your clothes dryer? Um, <laughs> but then it was also like, what's the best way to break down a stiff hide? So you kind of got it. Yeah. Well, well, to answer that first question, I've been through one divorce and I don't want to go through another. <laughs> yeah, that's, so. that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. So. Yeah, that's it for me. Um. All right, cool. Well, Zach, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, uh, I ask everyone out there go go check on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Walmart, wherever, and uh, check out Zach's book. Uh, it's an exciting read. I'm sure you will definitely enjoy it. And then uh, looking forward to uh, any potential follow-ons or some of your your fiction work. So uh, excited to go look that up as well. But. Um, for anybody out there, as always, the show notes will uh, will make those available online. So that'll include links to the book as well as links to any recipes or references that we have that we mentioned in the show. And then uh, head on over to social media and make sure you're following Harvesting Nature so you can stay up to date with all the cool, fun, exciting things that we have going on in the world of wild food. And then uh, once you've checked all these boxes, it seems like a long to-do list tonight, but I promise you it's not. Uh, whatever podcast platform you're listening to, please punch that five-star button, leave us a review, tell us we're doing right, or, you know, tell us we're doing wrong. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night.